We're continuing our series today called The Messed Up Church. And so as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 5 through 10, what we've been saying is that the Corinthian church had the same kind of problems that we have today, that all churches uh, throughout all time struggle uh, to separate from the old ways that we've been walking in and to follow Jesus and the purity that he calls us to. And so we have lessons to learn from the letter to Corinth uh, just as they did. So we're going to be in chapter 6 today as we continue this series, seeking to obey Jesus in our sexual lives. This week we're calling it Flee from Sexual Sin. Flee from Sexual Sin. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Uh, you can find that on page 955 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs. I encourage you to follow along there. Um, you've if you've been around the church long, you've probably heard me talk about wasps. Uh, I actually had a house fire trying to get rid of wasps one time. It's this lifelong battle trying to fight the wasps in our backyard. Yeah, seriously. No, it really happened. <laughs> She's like, for real? Um, <laughs> and the wasps just keep coming back. And so it's just this ongoing battle. And I don't know if you've ever been stung by wasps. But it's very painful. It's kind of like an electrical shock that shoots through your whole body. Um, so it's happened to me several times. So when I go out and I see a wasp nest in the backyard, I have my wasp spray. I get up close enough to spray it. But of course, as soon as I spray it and the wasps get mad and start to come out, what do I do? Anybody know? I run. Thank you very much. Yes. The biblical word for that is flee. I run as fast as I can, right? And I often think about this because I'm kind of a, you know, I've got a little bit of ego. I think, I wish I could look tougher when I'm running from a wasp nest, you know? Because like I spray the nest and then I'm like, and I'm screaming and running through the backyard and sometimes my wife sees me and then I'm embarrassed because I want her to think I'm tough and cool and not afraid of things like that. Um, but I use that as an illustration because the scripture warns us to flee from sexual sin. There is a sense of like panic and urgency here. And as modern people, we need to understand that we don't buy that, right? Like we're too cool for that. We're too smart to run from sexual sin. We're like, oh, we can handle this. That's so old-fashioned. Paul didn't understand what we understand now about, you know, the modern world and love and all that stuff. And I just want to challenge you. <laughs> no, it is damaging. It's destructive. Sexual sin is something that takes us away from God's design for our lives. And the way I like to say it is God loves us more than we do. Like God really cares about our joy and our happiness more than we do. And sexual sin is a slow poison. So here's the problem. When we're faced with sexual sin, it's not like a wasp's nest, right? Because I've been stung by those wasps. So my body has a good and healthy reflex that when I see a wasp coming, the adrenaline kicks in and I run. But here's the problem. Sexual sin is more like going out in the backyard and seeing a nest of ice cream cones, right? And being told, no, you got to take the wasp killer and spray down those ice cream cones that are up there in the net. You know, like, you're like, no, that, that doesn't make sense. Like, ice cream tastes good, right? And that's, that's part of the difficulty we face with sexual sin. There's something good and right about sexuality. It's a good gift that God has given to us. It's pleasurable. And so this is one of those sins where we engage in it and we're like, I heard it was terrible, but it was great, right? And so we struggle to obey the Lord in this area. Because often when we indulge in sexual sin, I mean, sometimes we get the blessing of disgust and we're like, man, that was wrong. I shouldn't do that. 
But oftentimes, we engage in sexual sin and we're like, well, my Sunday school teacher said this was terrible, but it was actually kind of fun. So now I'm confused, right? And so that's part of the difficulty of sexual sin is it is short-term fun, but long-term poison. And so the scripture says, hey, we got to teach you something that you're not going to know from your instincts. Your instincts are not going to teach you to run from this. So God's telling us, no, really, you need to run from this. You need to flee from these areas of sexual sin. Now, on the other side of that, I want to acknowledge that sometimes churches have gone overboard in trying to motivate us to be afraid of it. Uh, you've probably heard people talk about the abuses of the purity movement where you know, well-intentioned youth pastors will twist kids' arms with all kinds of stories of manipulation and guilt. And I want to say, yeah, sometimes we can go too far trying to guilt-motivate people. Here's the thing. Don't flee sexual sin to get God to love you. Flee sexual sin because you believe he loves you and you trust him. So we're going to keep coming back to that again and again. Biblical obedience is based on God has won my heart because Jesus died for me. I am not obeying Jesus to win his love. I'm obeying Jesus because I'm convinced that he gave himself for me, that he saved me, that he loves me, and he knows better than I do how to live my life. That's, that's the foundation. So let's look at the text. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. That's the strong charge of our section today. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. That's that's the big picture, right? God's given us bodies. That's the, that's the world in which we live. God's put us in this physical world. And as spiritual beings, we are to glorify God with our physical bodies. That's the call. Again, not, not to win his love, but because he's given it to us already in Jesus. So I'm going to pray that God would teach us and help us today. Let me pray. God, we uh, admit that this is a, an awkward topic. This is a difficult topic. Uh, and also, this is a topic that our culture is extremely confused about. And so there are all kinds of competing voices, ideas, and experiences that will be bombarding us as we try to study this. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would supernaturally give us the gift of hearing and obeying your word, that this would be a supernatural experience where we would hear your word, we would see your goodness, and we would follow you. Help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we often like to say that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. Um, I want to say right off the bat, I'm married. I've been married 28 years. And so sometimes for singles, people might think, well, Dave, that's easy for you to say, flee sexual temptation, but you're, you're in a you know, happy marriage, so you don't understand what it's like. And I would say this is being taught by the Apostle Paul um, and by proxy through Jesus Christ, who are both single and happy about it. And so the Bible blesses singleness. We'll see that later on in chapter 7 and says it can be a part of a fully satisfying, full life. Uh, So I just want to challenge you that we all have different temptations. We all have different struggles. And God challenges us to obey Jesus where we are uh, with the circumstances that we are living in. I also want to pick up uh, part of the confusion that's come up in these sections starts in the previous verses we looked at last week. And so Paul does this thing in in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where he names certain kinds of sexual sin. Um, And one of the objections to the Christian view of sexuality is, man, we don't understand because we live in this modern Christendom or post-Christendom world. But in the Roman Empire, it was different. And they didn't quite understand our kind of loving relationships that we have today. So now we're told that sexual sin is okay if it's in a loving relationship, right? That love is what makes it okay. Well, what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, last week's section, is he names two different kinds of sexual sin. He names the initiating uh, homosexual sin and the passive homosexual sin. He says both kinds are sin. All sexual sin is sin. Paul names that specifically. Because here's the deal. In the Roman Empire in the first century, they believed, just like we do, that certain kinds of sexual sin are okay. But in their world, it was a different definition. In our world, it's, it's love. Well, if you're in love, it's okay. That's how we do it today. In the Roman Empire, they said, if you're taking charge, if you're taking the initiative, if you're the dominant and the aggressive one, then it's okay. Because the Roman Empire was obsessed with power. So if you're the powerful one, then sexual sin is okay. If you're the weak one, then sexual sin's kind of gross and bad. That was the way they excused it. The way the Bible teaches us is, no, we have to obey what God tells us to do. It's not about love, and it's not about dominance. It's about obeying the commands of God. So Leviticus 18 outlines these in the Old Testament. Paul is picking up this Jewish tradition, bringing the moral law of the Jewish Old Testament into the New Testament, All the apostles, all the writers of the New Testament affirm the Jewish view of sexuality, bring it into the New Testament. And that view is that sexuality is a beautiful gift from God. It is something to be enjoyed, but it's to be enjoyed in the covenantal fireplace of lifelong heterosexual covenantal marriage. And and that's where sexuality is to be enjoyed. And then celibacy is a great gift from God as well and something to be enjoyed also. And those are the two options, Christian marriage and celibacy. And we have to admit as Christians that that is appalling to the rest of the world. That's appalling. So we just have to, we just have to be real about that. Like, yeah, our, our ethic is offensive to others. We're sorry. We'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to reason with you about why we think it makes sense and it's not a horrible thing, but we understand it's offensive to people. We've got to be loyal to Jesus. We believe that Jesus is telling us the right thing even when it's different from what the the rest of the world says. Again, because he's proven his love for us. So simple outline here this morning. Paul gives three reasons that we should flee from sexual sin. He gives theological reasons. 
He doesn't just give guilt manipulation reasons like the purity movement sometimes does. And he doesn't just give practical reasons, although some of them are practical as well, but he's giving us theological reasons. He gives three of them. He says, number one, flee because resurrection is real. That's going to be hard to say. Resurrection is real, okay? It's a reality. Jesus is risen from the dead. You and I, if we have faith in Jesus, we will rise from the dead. Secondly, flee because sex is powerful. Sex is powerful. There's something mystical and magical about human sexuality. We're more than just animals. There's something powerful going on in sexuality. Sex is powerful. And then third, flee because believers are temples. We are temples. We are to display God's presence in the world. We're temples, temples of the Holy Spirit. So number one, flee because resurrection is real. It's real. We see this in verses 12 through 15, and we, we start with some kind of warm-up stuff he's saying that applies to the whole section. He's quoting, you might see in your different translations, quotation marks where it seems like he's quoting them, or he's, some commentators think he's quoting things he said in different contexts that now they're pulling out of context to justify their sexual sin. So we're not sure exactly where these phrases come from. Either they were originated in the Corinthian culture, or maybe it was something that Paul said. Some of them sound like things that maybe Paul said in certain contexts, and they're taking them out of context. But the first quote in verse 12 says, all things are lawful for me. So the commentators that think this was a Paul quote, they're talking about when it comes to food that we would eat and how we're no longer bound to the ceremonial law, which is kind of helpful because that's one of the big bait and switches that goes on in the debates today is people say, well, you can't be against sexual immorality if you're for eating shrimp, right, Uh, or other shellfish, or if you think it's okay to get a tattoo, well, then you can't be against this, right? If you mix your cloths, that was forbidden in the Old Testament, so then you can't be against sexual immorality. People try to do the shell game where they confuse you with that. Now, there's this clear distinction between the judicial law of the Old Testament, the ceremonial law, the rituals and rites, and then the moral law. The moral law is continued in the New Testament. So, Probably in context, Paul's talked about that, like, no, these things are lawful. Like, we can, we can live like Gentiles, not in the immoral way, but in the ceremonial ways. So all things are lawful for me. But he says, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. He says again, verse 13, uh, second, sorry, second half of verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. It's like, here's, here's another way to look at that. It might be okay for you to do, but is it taking over your life? Is it dominating you? Is it mastering you? This opens the doorway to this whole concept of idolatry. There can be things in our life that are good gifts from God, that are wonderful things by themselves or as we receive them as gifts from God, but if we allow them to master us, they've become false gods. And then verse 13, he says, Here's another phrase. We think this comes from Corinthian culture, Stoic culture maybe even. Food's meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. So it's this kind of attitude, the naturalistic attitude of like, hey, we're just sexual urges. That's just an, uh, you know, it's just a physical, biological thing. We just, we don't have to worry about it. You know, no reason to feel any guilt about it. It's just an urge, just like eating. Paul clarifies, again, second part of verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So again, this is the bizarre Christian ethic of sexuality. We we have to admit, the Christian view of sexuality is different, and that's okay. We believe it's a good and beautiful thing because we trust Jesus. 
So Paul says the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We have a devotion to the Lord first. Our allegiance is to him. Now, I want to answer the biological urges thing, because that's one of the strongest things that influences us, and we just want to make sure we're aware of the, the soup that we live in, the air that we breathe, and it's a very Darwinian, naturalistic, materialistic world that we live in. We live in a world that says, again and again, there's nothing really out there. Uh, we have physical explanations for everything. Christianity says, no, that material world is, is right and good, and the scientific method makes sense, and, and, and these physical realities are there, and we can see them and analyze them. And I would argue Christianity gave ride, rise to the modern scientific movement, right? Like, we, we produce the greatest scientists, so we, we agree with that. God made the world orderly. We can be proud of that as Christian thinkers, but there's still more. There's something else. Uh, the, the orderliness of the scientific world, the natural world, points to a maker, a designer, who has brilliantly designed everything. And so we have to recognize that it'd be easy for us to look at it the same way. Like, yeah, the stomach's for food, the food's for stomach, you know, it's just, just physical world, that's all there is. Paul says, no, there's, there's more. And so this is the way Paul describes it. We're not animals. He says it this way in verse 14. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We are similar to animals, but we're not just animals. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and Jesus Christ is going to raise us from the dead as well. Human beings are made in the image of God, right? So we share a lot of physical characteristics with the animals. We have a lot of the same biological urges as the animals, yet there's something different about human beings. We're made in the image of God, and by faith in Jesus, he's going to rise, raise us from the dead. So verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So the Greek worldview, not exactly the same as our materialistic, naturalistic worldview, but kind of ended up in some of the same places, which was the material world is just no big deal. It's all going to burn anyway, right? It's all just going to be destroyed, and the reality is the spirit world. That's kind of the Greek, the Greek way of thinking. Really, there's the spirit world that really matters, and that's where we're headed, and so the physical world doesn't matter. And you can see how that could kind of get mixed up with the Christian worldview. So these guys become believers, and they're like, yeah, Christianity agrees with this Greek worldview. The spirit world's all that matters. Physical world doesn't matter, so we can do whatever we want, Right? As long as we pray the prayer, as long as we belong to Jesus, we can do whatever we want in this reality. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. God's redeeming the physical world. The resurrection proves that God is redeeming the cosmos. He's redeeming our physical bodies. He's going to raise you from the dead just like Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so it matters what we do with our bodies. So we flee from sexual sin because the resurrection is real. The resurrection gives dignity to our physical bodies. The resurrection clarifies what was started in the incarnation, right? Athanasius writes a lot about this, one of the earliest theological works. Athanasius wrote a book called On the Incarnation. He starts this concept that Jesus gives dignity to the physical world and to our physical bodies by becoming a human being. And then also the resurrection seals it, right? The resurrection proves it. 
that Jesus destroyed sin and death once and for all. Not only did he take our sins upon himself, but he rose from the dead, proving that he's conquered sin and death, and he has redeemed his physical body and is redeeming our physical body. So he gives, he gives a glory and a nobility to our physical life. And so we need to watch out for the thinking that, like, ah, it doesn't matter, we're just, we're just animals, right? I grabbed a picture of a monkey in a cage. Uh, any of you ever gone to, like, see the monkeys at the zoo? Yeah? Monkeys can be kind of gross. Any of you ever, let me say it this way, any of you ever seen monkeys do gross things at the zoo? Yeah. Um, my, yeah, I know. We probably can't talk about it in a mixed company. Uh, my son still remembers some of the most disgusting things he's ever seen in his life happened at the monkey cage at the Waco Zoo when he was a kid. Um, man, the monkeys are disgusting. Paul's saying, we're not, we're not monkeys, guys, right? Like, we're not monkeys. There, there's more to, than just this, more than just physical urges. But here's the problem. Our, our lives are full of physical urges, right? And so what happens, I think this is part of the confusion, is we have aesthetic sensibilities, right? Things that we just are naturally attracted to, we think are beautiful. We have a longing to end the loneliness, the ache that all human beings feel. And we have these biological urges. And I think in the whole debate about sexuality, all those things are mixed up and swirled together in a blender and people are just endlessly confused, right? And so here's what I want to recommend. If you struggle with temptations towards sin, don't beat yourself up about it. Just say, Jesus, help me, right? You don't have to turn that into some kind of bigger thing than it needs to be. Look to the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Romans says, while we were yet sinners, he didn't wait for us to stop sinning, to stop being tempted towards evil, to stop wanting the wrong things. Jesus came after you. He proved his love for you. So if you struggle with temptation towards sin, just bring it to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Jesus, help me with this. Don't run the other direction in shame. I think that's one of the biggest problems in the area of sexual sin is we think this is shameful, so I've got to hide from God until I fixed it. And you can't fix it on your own. No one can. You need to run to Jesus. And so just recognize the complication of these things, but be encouraged that we're not animals. God, by his Holy Spirit, through the cross, gives us the power to live in a new way, to choose rightly, to do right things, to live pure lives. He'll he'll help you to do that, but don't try to do it on your own. So a couple of application questions. Number one, do you default to the, it's no big deal because we're just animals? Like, is that where you default? Is that your worldview? And think about, where, where did that worldview come from? Is that the biblical worldview, or is that just what I've been taught in my culture? Or do you default on the other side to maybe the Victorian worldview, if it's like utterly gross and disgusting, right? That's kind of like a twisted version of the animal view. <laughs> oh, it's so disgusting and gross. No, it's actually a good gift from God. Sexuality is a good gift from God, but we are to give it back to him in the fireplace, the boundaries of of covenantal lifelong heterosexual marriage. The resurrection gives nobility to our humanity. It gives nobility to our physical life, but it also makes us accountable to how we live in the body. 
We're not disembodied minds. We're not just minds floating around and all that matters is what we think and feel. No, how we live actually matters. We are to obey Jesus with our bodies. We're not Gnostics. Gnostics are the ones that say all that matters is the thought world and the spiritual world and the thinking world. We're embodied people and we are to use our bodies to glorify God. So don't live in fear, but trust that Jesus loves you. If you struggle with temptation, bring it to Jesus and ask him to help you to live an obedient life. Again, we've got all kinds of resources. I'm, I'm a book guy, so I default to books, but probably a lot of you need to talk to somebody. I'd be glad to talk to you about it. Uh, email, encourage you to get involved in, in one of our groups. Um, groups are so helpful in helping us to walk with Jesus. In groups, we read the Bible together, and we pray for each other, and then we try to obey Jesus together, right? Um, sometimes uh, groups div- kind of devolve into just talking about meaning, right? Sometimes we call them Bible studies. We love Bible studies. Bible studies are awesome, and that, you'll hear that thrown around like, yeah, we have a Bible study, but be careful that your Bible study isn't just about collecting information. That's one of the dangers of making Bible study the default of what you're doing. No, you're, you're actually trying to obey the Bible. You're actually trying to walk with Jesus. So make that a part of your groups. Okay, the second point is we should flee because sex is powerful. Sex really is powerful. Um, think about all the songs we have about romance and sex. It's just a huge part of our, our culture, and that is because it really is this powerful, amazing thing. I've continued to come back to the, the idea of fire. Fire is powerful. It's dangerous, and it's a huge blessing. Sexuality is very similar. It's very powerful. You could even say that Paul's teaching something like sex is mystical, or magical, like there's just something more than just the physical union that's taking place. So let's see this in verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Tim Keller does a good job teaching on this. He's got a a sermon on sexuality where he covers some of this uh, territory in chapter six and chapter seven together. And he talks about how here he says, don't you know that he was joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. And his point is, this is more than just physical body, right? Because otherwise, what he says doesn't make sense. If he's just talking about physicality, it would be saying, don't you know that you who become physically one become physically one? It's like, that's, that's, he's saying more than that, right? When he uses this word body, he's talking about the somatic, uh, psychosomatic unity, the like, we're, we're more than just our physical flesh. There's something more happening here. There's a greater mystical unity that's taking place sexually. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh. He's going back to God's intention for sexuality in the creation narratives, that God made us to be one. And there's something mystical, something soulish that takes place there. Verse 17 says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So here he's jumping again. We could be confused if we think he's just talking physicality, but he's saying, no, there's a, there's a spiritual oneness that we have with the Lord, just like there's some kind of extra mystical oneness. There's this powerful oneness that takes place in human sexuality. It's more than just the reproduction value that the animals enjoy. There's something more taking place in human sexuality. Verse 18, so flee 
from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So again, there are all kinds of other sins we commit that are physical in that sense. He's saying there's something mystical. It's every other sin uh, is outside the body. He's saying, but, but we're sinning against our own personhood would be a way to translate this. We're sinning against our own oneness. I grabbed a picture of superglue. I found online uh, all kinds of stuff you can Google. How to remove superglue from your skin. Anybody ever had that problem? You're you're gluing something, and then you're like, oh, now I'm stuck to the thing I was trying to glue. It's very frustrating, right? Um, And you can can actually tear some of your skin off when you're operating with superglue, right? And that can be painful. Usually, it might just be a little soft layer of skin, but... I use the illustration because sexuality is a, is a joining, and then when you separate and then join with another person, there's a, there's a tearing apart from that person. It's a joining of persons. And so there's a tearing apart of personhood and a joining of personhood and a tearing apart of personhood uh, when you're engaged in serial relationships, when you're engaged in sexual immorality. There's a, there's a mystical union that takes place and then a, a tearing that takes place. Now, this is not to say it's not recoverable, but there is a kind of theological slash pragmatic case that Paul is making here. Like, don't you understand? Something spiritual is happening and you're spiritually hurting yourself. You're damaging yourself. Again, we don't want to go to the extremes of the purity movement and you know, guilt and manipulation, but we want to say, no, there, there was a truth there. The purity movement existed for a reason. It's because... There's real damage that can take place. And we've got to recognize that and say, man, that, yeah, there's an issue here. We, we don't want you to be hurt. That's, that's really what Paul is saying, and that's what I'm saying. That this is hurting you. And, and again, our instincts when we come up to a wasp nest is to run the other way because we're like, wasps sting me. But sexuality is a short-term enjoyment. And so we don't get it, and we have to be taught spiritually. No, trust Jesus. Jesus knows better than we do. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to obey him. We're going to believe what he's told us. So there's a real joining and a real tearing apart when human beings engage in sexuality. And he's also adding, we don't want to drag Jesus into this because we're spiritually one with Jesus. And so there's a sense in which when we're spiritually one with Jesus and we bring Jesus into the kind of sexual union that he's blessed, that's good and right. But when we're dragging him into these other sexual unions, that's that's not a good thing. That is something that we should be um, warned by. We should flee from. We should run from. We should have a, this is not right. Oh my goodness, I got to run. So I want to come back to the idea of, of greater and lesser sins. The scripture is really clear that all sin is sin. All, all sin is the same in this sense. And that is, it separates us from God. All sin is, is us saying, I want to be my own God. God, I don't want to follow you, right? And so in that sense, all sin is forgivable. All sin is, it can be laid at the foot of the cross, can be forgiven as it's laid on Jesus, as we trust Jesus. I want you to understand that. So Paul's making an argument here, somewhat pragmatically saying, there is something kind of different that happens here that's spiritually damaging, that can hurt you but you can still heal from that. So on the one hand, we want to agree with Paul and say, run, be afraid, it's going to sting you, it's going to hurt you. It's a slow poison that's going to damage you. 
But then I also want to say on the other side, man, if you've engaged in sexual sin or any other sin, know that Jesus forgives, Jesus heals. And there's no intention, intention to heap undue shame here. God forgives past sins, and then he leads us in new life, right? Jesus would always say, go and sin no more. It was very easy. Jesus didn't stand there and say, well, I can't believe you did this, right? Like, that's not, that's not what he did. He was like, yeah, go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Be free. Don't beat yourself up. Be free. Walk in newness of life. So I want you to hear that. Again, we have groups for that purpose. I remember years ago, we were in an, one of our small group Bible studies, and someone was sharing their own testimony of, of sexual sin. And our group had been one of those groups that had been kind of it kind of had that kind of surface friendliness. You know, we were all buddies, but we didn't talk about a lot of deep things. We'd kind of devolved into the Bible study where we talked about what the Bible meant, but we didn't have a lot of personal application. New guy joins the group and he shares his testimony of a past of, of incredible sexual sin. And our jaws were all like, Kunk, you know, like on the floor, like, wow, he went deep real fast. You know, like he shared way more than we're used to sharing. Um, that was transformative for that group. That helped us, all of us, to become real about that. Healthy, small group, Bible studies, accountability partners, you're sharing real stuff. You're saying, this is who I was, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, last week's section. That is who you were, but now you're washed, you're sanctified, Jesus is healing you, he's justified you, now we're walking in newness of life. So I want to encourage a healthy sharing where we're like, yeah, this is, this is who I was and this is what I'm struggling with but we're trying to obey Jesus together. But it can, it can help our, our communities be healthier as we share real struggles and share real things. But at its essence, that's what all the communities are for, helping us to say, I used to do this, I'm not doing that anymore, now I'm walking with Jesus. Will you help me to obey Jesus? Because we're all going to struggle in different ways. We're all going to be tempted in different ways, and these communities can help us to be obedient. I also want to say, uh, some of you may need biblical counseling. Some of you may just feel stuck. We encourage groups. We talk about Celebrate Recovery as a specialized form of group where we help people work through uh, hurts, habits, and hangups. But also sometimes you want to go through biblical counseling and want to encourage you to pursue that as well if, if you feel like that would be helpful if you just kind of feel stuck and are having a hard time getting past some of these things. And then finally, on the preventative side, I would say talk to your kids about these things. Um, make sure your kids know that you're willing to have the awkward conversations with them, right? Um, and by the way, there's no Christian book that can make it not awkward, just so you know. <laughs> like, it's, it's going to be way awkward. But be willing to have the awkward conversations, right? Like, that's part of what we're trying to do here, rip off the Band-Aid and say, hey, we're going to preach these really awkward texts that I really don't want to preach, but we're going to do it anyway, right? Because it's worth talking about. And you need to have those kind of conversations with your kids. As I, I was talking to, uh, as we went over the sermon this week, talking to Kathy Araka, our women's director, and Heather Morris, our uh, elementary director, kind of talking about how they've done that with their kids. And a couple of things that came out of that. Uh, one was talking about biologically how things work, right? Like we're not animals, but we share some biology with animals. And, you know, it's important to understand the biology side of it, but also the spiritual side of it and talking about God's design, God's ideals for us. So it's important to talk about both sides of those things with your kids. All right, third point. Flee because we are temples. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. God lives within us. A temple is where people come to meet God and God comes down to dwell with people. 
So there's kind of pagan understandings of that, and then there's Jewish and Christian understandings of that. The Jewish and Christian understanding of that centers around the gospel. That God is holy, that we're outside of paradise because of our rebellion and desire to do our own thing, but Jesus has come after us. God has taken our sin upon himself. In the Old Testament, it was all these sacrifices that painted the picture that a sacrifice needs to be made and that God will bring us into his presence through these sacrifices, that God is holy, but he makes sacrifices and he forgives and he cleanses us from our sin. We know that is fully fulfilled now in Jesus Christ. And so our temple, our body should be telling that story. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So again, he comes back to this idea, our, our bodies should show the world who God is and what God is like. That doesn't mean we're perfect and we never make mistakes, but our bodies are meant to point the world to God, that God is worth following. He's worth obeying. When we stumble and fall, we get up and we say, God, forgive me. Thank you that you love me. And you've taken away my sin. And we pursue him and we obey him. He says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He had talked about this earlier in 1 Corinthians. Again, we saw this last year when we did the series in the first four chapters, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And there in chapter three, he talks a lot about our pride and how the Christians in Corinth were puffed up and they thought they were saved because of how great they were, how strong they were. And he's like, no, you're not saved by how great you are. You're saved by what Jesus does. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 makes a big deal of explaining that we do not display as a temple properly when we're proud. The only way for us to display as a proper temple of the Holy Spirit who God is and to tell the story with our lives is when we're humble, when we're showing people that we are dependent on God. And so to pull that in now to his discussion of sexual immorality, again, the same story needs to be told. We're not proud Remember in chapter five, he's like, the problem is you're proud of your sexual sin. Don't be, don't be proud of it, mourn and grieve. We shouldn't be proud. We should be humble and say, Jesus knows better than I do. And so when we have these debates with our culture and our culture is like, the sexual ethic of Christians is ridiculous. We can say, well, I don't, I don't completely understand it. I just trust Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the resurrection? Let's take it back to Jesus. The only reason I obey Jesus is because Jesus is worth obeying. I'm not building from the ground up. I will do everything God says because I've figured out all the answers and everything that God tells me to do makes perfect sense on a human level. No, sometimes we don't fully understand. Sometimes we just say, Jesus has told me to obey him. So I'm going to obey him. And we need to have those humble conversations. Now, do I think Jesus actually intends full human flourishing and that those kinds of logical arguments can be made? Yes, I do, but I think sometimes we want to make logical, apologetic arguments from the standpoint of, I know all the answers, and I'm a, I'm a smart Christian. That's why you should follow Jesus, because I'm so smart. No, that's, that's not an argument from humility. That's not an argument that points to Jesus. That's not me being a temple that points to God. That's me saying, I'm smart, and I've got it all figured out. Fact is, we don't. We don't have it all figured out. We're stumbling forward, and we're like, I just know Jesus is my only hope. So we want to be careful when we get into these debates because sometimes our, our pride can, we can get prickly and we can be like, well, I know the right thing and I'm going to defend Christendom and Western civilization. No, just say, I just know I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me. So I'm going to obey him. I'm going to follow what he says. 
I have a picture here I found of a billboard. Can you read the billboard? Anybody read the billboard there? There's, this is the trick. There's no message on the billboard. It's a blank billboard. And as a temple, another way of thinking of what a temple does, a temple is a broadcast center. A temple is a dramatic broadcast center that is always telling the story of that God, right? And so in Corinth, they had temples full of prostitution, and that's the story they were telling. The Old Testament Jewish temple and the New Testament temple of us obeying Jesus, we tell a different story. We tell the story of a holy God who is yet gracious, who gives himself to save us from ourselves. So we can trust him and we can obey him and we can follow him. Is your life telling that story? Um, It's not just our sex habits, but our work habits. Are your work habits telling the story? Are you a temple of the Holy Spirit in the way that you work and you interact with people in the rest of the world? It's how we live our lives as neighbors. What kind of neighbor are you? If I were to interview your neighbors and say, what kind of story is their life telling? What, What would they say? Um, it's not just our work habits, our sex habits. Uh, think about our driving habits. Uh, I've been working on this one lately. We've been passing out Grace Bible Church car stickers. Have y'all seen that? Say, so, hey, go get the car sticker. But if your driving habits are not sanctified, you might, you might hesitate, right? Maybe just stick it on your Nalgene, you know, if you're better at work than you are on the highway. I don't know. But how do we drive? This is the one that, this is, this is one that hurts me the most. My wife and I get in fights about this sometimes, because I want to win when I'm in my car, right? Like I just, I just want to win. I think of it as a competition. It's a race, right? But she, she tells me it's not. I'm trying to obey Jesus when it comes to driving. Um, and he talked last week, chapter 6, how do we treat the poor and the outsider? Again, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't say it's okay to be a certain kind of tribal Christian. He says we got to obey Jesus in every area, our sexual morality and and how we handle our money. And that's part of what he hit at the beginning of chapter 6. Most commentators would say the suing and the lawsuits were, were really more than just greed and selfishness. It was about the powerful suppressing the poor. And that was a big common problem in Corinth. So how do we handle our money? How do we handle our sexuality? These are all ways that we are a temple that shows that we're devoted, that we belong to Jesus. We don't belong to ourselves, right? He says... You were not your own. You were bought with a price. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about marriage and how we're actually married to Jesus in his commentary on Ephesians 5. And Lloyd-Jones says this, It is idle of us to claim that Christ has died for us unless we know that he has separated us. Do you know for sure that you no longer belong to the world? That there's been a change in you? That you've been moved? That you've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son? Do you feel that you're a stranger here in this world? Do you recognize you're a stranger, you're a pilgrim, you don't really belong to the systems of this world? He goes on and he says, can you say with Paul, my citizenship is in heaven, like Paul says in Philippians 3? Can you say with Paul that he gave himself for her, that he might put her on the side for himself as his own peculiar possession? Jesus has saved you. He has bought you. He has separated you. You belong to Christ. And we'll end here. Um, You were bought with a price. 
Paul says, so glorify God in your body. We're all struggling with temptation in many ways. And I think it's helpful to look to Jesus when we struggle with those temptations. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus fighting desire and saying, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup of suffering from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done, Jesus prays in the garden. Jesus gave himself for us in that moment, and he becomes the promise that we're loved, and that we can trust him with our desires. Do you recognize that? Will you offer your desires back to him? Will you say to him, honestly, Jesus, I'm struggling with desire. I feel alone. I feel needy, but not my will. Your will be done. When Jesus died on the cross for us, it, it tells us two things. Number one, God delights in you. And number two, he owns you. You belong to him. He delights in you and you belong to him. So, so we can trust him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you've proven that by giving Jesus to us. We pray that you would teach us to be sexually pure and to be humble. God, help us to obey you because you're worth obeying, not because we've got it all figured out. God, we live in confusing times when arguments are being thrown at us from every different direction. Help us to listen to your voice, to trust you, to see your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.